It's time to heed the call of the wild and seek the higher calling. Higher Calling is the voice of mountain and forest wildlife and is hosted by award-winning wildlife journalist and conservationist Chester Moore. Be ready for an increase in altitude and a relentless pursuit of the creatures that dwell there. All right, welcome to Higher Calling Wildlife. This is Chester Moore, and I can't believe how excited I am for this guest because, number one, I love this guest. She's awesome. I met her like 16 years ago, which is insane. It's been that long. And I've been following her stuff on social media and her research. And when I think of great wildlife research going on, honestly, I think of my friend, Dr. Natalie Schmidt. She is a conservation genetic scientist, which has such incredible applications these days. A docu-film presenter, which is the capacity where I met her. And she is the founder and scientific director of Wild Tech DNA. Welcome to Higher Calling Wildlife. Oh, Chester, thank you so much for having me. It's just been so good to see you after all these years and, yeah, just, and just catch up with you and talk about wildlife and, and share our stories. I'm really, really excited. Yeah, before we started, we were talking about great whites and blue whales. So uh, I was saying that my friend Natalie here uh, was always the person. My friends were always like, man, you get to do the coolest wildlife stuff. And I pull up my Natalie with, you know, in, in, in Antarctica picture. Go, my friend wins. He's got awesome stuff going on. I'm proud of her, you know. But we connected on this because, you know, you had reached out to me a while back and sent me a link when you first started doing the DNA work with snow leopards, you know. And uh, one of my favorite animals lives in the realm of the snow leopard, which is Argali, you know, all the wild sheep of Asia and those animals like that. And, of course, snow leopards are just amazing, mysterious animals. And my favorite animal, my entire adult life, other than great white sharks, that's like its own category. Like since Jaws, I can't really compare to the great white, is the jaguar. I've always been deeply fascinated with Panthera anca, the jaguar, because of uh, a captive jaguar I got to photograph a lot when I was in college and learned a lot about the species and that they had a history even in Texas back in, you know, up, up to the early 1900s. And um, so we started a, a Jaguar project called Jaguar Revival to use what media platforms we have to raise awareness to Jaguars. And when you look at an animal that's had 40% of its habitat loss, that there is now a massive amount of new poaching even because of the Asian demand in the market, the depletion of tigers over there, which have kind of been their go-to for that. Um, genetics are incredibly important to what you're doing in research. So just first off, Tell us what wild tech DNA is and why this is important to not just jaguars, but other, other wildlife. Gosh, okay. Wow, what an introduction. Thanks, Chester. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is quite a big story. So, you know, as you mentioned, I used to study, I used to study whales, humpback whales and, and Antarctic blue whales. And I, I was trying to get various blue, you know, projects going, um, whale projects going and really struggling um, and, and really wanting to do something for conservation that has applications to, to the conservation of many species, not just mm -hmm. focusing on one, even though I love whales. But I also love the big cats, right? Oh, and yeah. so I'd always loved snow leopards in particular. And I thought, oh, you know, maybe I can find a project on snow leopards because I, I love that part of the world and I love that animal so much. And I stumbled upon this, this really important paper 
uh, that was written by a lab uh, here in Canada at McMaster University, a biomedical lab, that had developed this very simple paper-based uh, DNA detection test for bacteria mm -hmm. samples in food and water. Mm -hmm. And I read that and I had this like eureka moment where I thought, my gosh, imagine if that could be applied to species detection, to wildlife detection. Mm -hmm. Yes. The applications would be huge because currently we need to take samples off to a lab, which is, which is essentially what I do. You know, I would, mm -hmm. I would extract a sample from a whale. I would take mm -hmm. it back to my lab, extract the DNA, sequence that DNA, uh, and then learn, you know, learn about the species, learn about populations, learn about uh, individual movement, etc., etc. But these traditional laboratory approaches, they take a lot of time. They're mm -hmm. very expensive and they yeah. require a certain level of expertise. Mm -hmm. And really that is preventing most of the world from contributing to global conservation efforts, right? Mm -hmm. If you think about it. So many developing countries, one, do not have these traditional laboratory facilities and two, have legal restrictions on sending samples out of the country. Okay, that's, in, that's so, interesting. That's something I think most people wouldn't know about the legal restrictions. Exactly. So Nepal is one of those places. So, mm -hmm. so we can't take any samples outside the country. Luckily, they do have laboratory facilities in there. But yeah, everything has to be done in country. And mm -hmm. for example, I, I have a friend that works for WWF in Armenia. And mm -hmm. he studies leopards, Persian leopards in the Caucasus. Awesome. Yeah, awesome, wow, right? that's pretty cool. In the Caucasus, yeah, the Persian leopard, that's cool. In, in the Caucasus, of which there are only about seven individuals in this that, massive wow. mountain range. Yeah, they're, they're, mm -hmm. they're, they're severely threatened. So he mm -hmm. will spend weeks out in the field collecting what he thinks are Persian leopard samples. Mm-hmm. And because they don't have the facilities in Armenia to analyze these samples, he needs to then send them off to a lab in Germany. Mm -hmm. And it takes six months in Germany Jeez. to analyze these samples. And Jeez. when I spoke to him last, he just got the results back from three weeks of sampling in the Caucasus. Mm -hmm. Zero Persian leopards. <laughs> wow! All of the samples he collected were from a different carnivore, right? Wow. And so he wasted all this time and all mm -hmm. this money mm -hmm. uh, trying to find, yeah, Persian leopards. So if he had this device, so this device will be similar to a pregnancy test. It's just a little, and because it's mm -hmm. made of paper, it's mm -hmm. it's going to be very inexpensive, yeah. and the reagents are printed onto the paper device, so it makes mm -hmm. it really easy to use. So this is a device he could just take out into the field, take a fecal sample, put it on the device, wait for half an hour for the reaction to occur. And if you get a color change, it's like, ah, this is, my, this is, a, this is a Persian leopard, or if there's no mm -hmm. color change, then it belongs to a different carnivore. So I, okay, so, I'm, I'm telling a long story here, but... It's okay, um, it's fascinating. <laughs> so, 
So I, I was hugely passionate about this idea because I just saw the applications, not just to monitoring wildlife in the field, so rare and elusive species like jaguar, mm -hmm. like snow mm -hmm. leopard, like, yeah, you can think of so many, but it also has applications to tracking the illegal wildlife trade. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So with jaguar, you know, the bone is being trafficked um, to mm -hmm. replace tiger bone. And so when you have a bone sample, it's almost impossible to know what, you know, what that bone sample is from, what species. Yeah, you might from. be able to say, narrow it down, this is probably, you know, some kind of a cat or a carnivore or something. But, you know, if you're going to make a conviction or whatever, you got you to gotta know what it was, where it came from. Even, I guess, if they found it on the Asian side, mm. figuring out where they're coming from. Exactly. Right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, so you need law enforcement officers to be able to have mm -hmm. a piece of technology that they could just test that bone on the spot. But, and, and so this is a problem in developing countries, but it's also a problem in developed Western countries. Mm -hmm. So I have mm -hmm. a friend who's a, who's a, um, a customs officer in Australia. And he mm -hmm. said, even though we have the laboratory facilities in Australia mm -hmm. to analyze these samples, most of the time they won't bother because it's too much effort. Yes, same here. Oh, really? Yep, same, yeah, same here with, you know, one of the problems is, is budget slashes on like fish and game departments and stuff, you know. So unless it's something very big, you know, um, it's, it's hard for them to get that going on, you know, and also in terms of conviction rates and you know, it's, 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 it's a really vicious cycle. So this, this is fascinating, exactly. especially bringing it back to what's going on with jaguars, because you got kind of a twofold thing. You got the jaguars coming back into Arizona mm. and New Mexico as well. And one of those was killed, I think, three years ago on the Mexican side. They're pretty sure it was the same cat that had been crossing uh, because of the spot pattern and everything, you know. Mm. And I'm thinking about cases like this where maybe you have game camera photo, cat making scat, take <laughs> DNA sample, and then maybe you could definitely, you know, match what is, maybe this animal was captured or killed down in Mexico, those kind of things, you know, as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, there's just so many, so many applications for this. So I, I, I've been so passionate about mm -hmm. this that I gave everything up in Australia. I gave up a career in, in, in whale research I, I left my family and friends, I, I ended a relationship, I, um, uh, yeah, to move to Canada to, mm -hmm. to spend time with this lab that was using, <laughs> was using genetic uh, functional nucleic acid technology mm -hmm. that I was, I had no idea about. Like I'm a population geneticist, which is very mm -hmm. different to these um, state-of-the-art biomedical labs that use these techniques that are just just go completely over your head so i was completely out, out of my depth <laughs> going yeah, to I this lab but i thought i have to learn this i have to sure uh, yeah so broaden I, your horizons basically exactly and i think and i'm sure you will agree with this is that for us to really start succeeding in conservation we need mm -hmm. uh, multidisciplinary approaches sure so instead of us scientists just trying to do, us conservation scientists trying to do everything mm -hmm. ourselves, we need to work with a diverse group of experts. Um, Absolutely. To really make a you, difference, right? 
Well, my, my, you know, it's for example, my part, I'm not a scientist. You don't want me in a lab anywhere. I blew <laughs> something up on accident. Uh, <laughs> is journalism, media, mm. writing, investigating. So I can contribute awareness raising to what you guys are doing. You guys can contribute that to the governing agencies and people over the, you know, managing Jaguars or managing, you know, working, trying to define Persian leopard situations or whatever's going on in the world. And it all works together because of, uh, you know, technology is a beautiful thing, but technology can also be dangerous for wildlife as well. You know, we're looking at, um, I work a lot with uh, the Houston Safari Club Foundation who are doing a lot of stuff that on um, poaching patrols in parts of Africa against, you know, they're working with rhino poaching patrols. Wow. And they're, they're putting you know, a lot of money into stopping rhino poaching. And they're talking about poachers not just coming in with rifles, coming in with drones oh, and gosh. armed drones. And so they're, they're, they're marking the animals, GPSing them on drones. Yeah. And, they, you know, it's a different level. So um, having a technology like this that is, is easy to get and easy to use has got to be crucial and you mentioned the leopards and that low population density. Well, you know, the jaguar, this round, I've heard around 15,000, possibly 10 to 15,000. They're so elusive, no one really knows. Yeah. But you're looking at from literally southern, the southern part of the United States to Argentina. And so there's a big range there. How important is, of, of your genetic background is like interconnectivity between populations for long-term stability? How important is that for an animal like the jaguar? Oh, it's incredibly important. Mm -hmm. uh, to, to maintain healthy populations, you need, uh, you need uh, populations to interbreed. To mm -hmm. maintain a, a, a high level of genetic diversity. If populations mm -hmm. are too isolated and they're not able to genetically mix, then, yeah. then there's a huge risk that they, they could die out. Um, yeah. And it affects their, it affects their uh, health as well. Yeah, and you know, you're looking at situations that are catastrophic, like in the Pantanal right now in uh, Brazil in October, catastrophic fires. Yes. You know, and there there are estimates of maybe two to three hundred jaguars killed, or hurt, or displaced. And um, so you got a population of ten to fifteen thousand. Two hundred is a chunk in one hit. Oh, absolutely. And that's like a stronghold there. You know, that's yeah. a that's an absolute yeah. population stronghold. You look at other countries where. You know, you got jaguars in places like Nicaragua and, you know, in Honduras and places that are incredibly dangerous for people to go and research, too. You know, that's yeah, the other that's level true. of it. So being able to know genetic information and, you know, maybe travel corridors for these animals, you know, like how are they making their migrations and things like that? Yeah, wildlife corridors are crucial uh, between, mm -hmm. between protected areas. And uh, we're actually... Uh, we were involved in a, uh, uh, I was involved in a workshop between Mexico and uh, uh, South Africa recently, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. basically sharing knowledge and, and, and methodology uh, between leopard conservation in South Africa mm -hmm. and jaguar conservation in Mexico. You know, how can mm -hmm. we work together? What knowledge, what do we know from leopards that can help jaguars and vice versa? And mm -hmm. yeah, one, one of the things is that uh, we need to create wildlife corridors that that mm -hmm. is that is crucial to saving both of these species um and but we we, we first need to understand the genetics yeah of these po of these of these species mm -hmm. in these populations to know how we have the, the best way that we can connect these populations and what yeah what populations need to be connected and what perhaps mm -hmm. yeah it's not so crucial 
Well, there's a rewilding project that's really in, interesting in Argentina right now. Um, well, they've actually taken, uh, you know, cats and kept them in a big thing and, and allowed a wild male to come in and breed this female, and they let them out naturally. It's a really interesting process in an area where there's very few jaguars there. You know, it's kind of like the southern tip. Mm. And I think about places, if that were a possibility, if, this, if that could be developed, you know, and used somewhere. I mean, genetics has to be primary concern, making sure you're getting the right match for who's going to be breeding who. Yeah, that's very important. So, yeah, I mean, the concern is that, yeah, with illegal poaching and, and, and things like that, that you're getting alpha males with, you know, I guess I could say good, good fit genetics. You know, if they're yeah, removed yeah. from the population, then, then that could be hugely problematic. Now, uh, in terms of, of the jaguar, I mean, it's such an interesting animal because it, it, the range is large, but it's also a range of habitats. No, you think about a jaguar, you think of like Brazil, you think of the rainforest, but there are jaguars in the high desert. You know, they're, they're such an amazing animal in terms of a range, you know? Yeah, they're so incredibly diverse. I mean, to tell, to tell you the truth, I don't know a lot about uh, jaguars. Sure. I've, I've, I've only really uh, starting look, started to look into them because I've, I've had mm -hmm. considerable interest from um, parts of Latin America on the use of the mm -hmm. technology for for jaguar mm -hmm. conservation and and what i'm learning though is is gosh this, this animal is incredible this animal is so adaptive uh this animal is incredibly powerful and diverse and and yeah i i, I it could possibly become my new favorite uh, big cat i don't know snow leopards are still <laughs> well you know it's hard to argue with snow leopard but uh... What I tell everyone is that, look, I can, I can win this argument of the greatest cat because a jaguar has, is half the size of a Siberian tiger and has twice the bite power. So, you know. <laughs> no, that's true. But then, but then, hey, you know all about Tasmanian devils and their bite power. They're tiny that's little true. things and they got massive and jaws. They're, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're much smaller. Yeah, and and uh, and and a, and a jaguar would get uh, you know um, elevation sickness trying to get get after a snow leopard anyway. So but, that's true, although um, because of climate change and and mm -hmm. and changes to the uh, environment, uh, common leopards are actually starting to encroach on snow leopard habitat. You might have that's in, that's interesting. Yeah, it's and and actually, I saw a post from a friend uh, on Facebook mm -hmm. recently that uh, a tiger has been recorded at an elevation that we've never thought tigers would be at, and I can't remember what it was, but wow. it's a sign of the times. It's a sign that these animals are being pushed. Um, mm -hmm. Pushed to higher altitudes to find food. Um, That's interesting because I was just reading something about a month ago about spectacled bears, you know, and um, and how they found like a whole new population of them, like they didn't even know existed. Yes, I think I read that. You know, and on a DNA perspective, that would definitely be an interesting thing to look at. And like, you know, did these bears disperse from this group of animals or? You know, where do they come from? Or they've always been there. Is that, a, is that something that has to do with changes in the environment, you know? Uh, but that's also important where I think that um, we think we're so smart about everything, but also <laughs> getting back and talking to indigenous peoples. Oh. You know, like, what are your records? What are your recollections of these animals, you know? What are, what's your history here? 
Exactly, and and actually, so so I've been working on a uh, a snow leopard community project in with some mm -hmm. of these really remote Himalayan communities uh, with a with an NGO in the U.S. actually called Panji, and mm -hmm. um, we we're we're yet to start that project, but I'm really looking forward to actually talking to the people and and learning about what their knowledge is because mm -hmm. more often than not, you know, we particularly conservation researchers, we go into these communities thinking that we know best with, mm -hmm. with all our, sci our fancy science and, and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But we don't, we forget that, you know, these people have hundreds, sometimes thousands of years of knowledge of their mm -hmm. local ecosystem. And they can probably tell us more about these animals uh, than we could possibly tell them. And in fact, when I was in Nepal in 2013, uh, talking to uh, one of these uh, villages, everyone knew that there were seven snow leopards in the vicinity. They're like, "Oh yeah, really? we know. Yeah, we know that. Yeah, yeah." And the, and and I would ask <laughs> them, you know, where could I collect? Where do you think I should go to collect scat samples from snow leopard? Mm -hmm. And they said, "Well, if you just keep heading up that way <laughs> for like five days." <laughs> Five days. Yeah, I got yeah. you. And I was like, okay, yeah. Hmm. I don't know not, if I'm going to be able to do not that. Not good, huh? <laughs> but they knew exactly where. They, they just, everyone knew where, where we could find like it these was, samples. Like it was not a, you know, not a big deal. There's the yep. most elusive cat in the world, seven of them. Yep, yeah. exactly. It's just like, uh, why, why do we scientists need to collect samples to know that there are seven snow leopards? The locals already know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, maybe, maybe the Persian leopard uh, guy needs to talk to some locals. Exactly. <laughs> I'm sure he did. I'm sure he did. But I, yeah, this guy. Important. I'm thinking of looking for a needle in the haystack. You know, the caucuses mm. and you know remoteness and trying to find an animal that you know may or may not be there in very many big numbers. That's got to be a challenge. But you know, going back to the whole jaguar thing, researching incredibly intelligent incredibly elusive animal that I know I, I talked to a guy who lived in Belize and worked in Belize, which is a, you know, a fairly stable area for, for Jaguars. Um, he worked there for like 20 years and um, you know, they think he saw one and he worked in the rainforest, you know, he saw one Jaguar Seriously? and it was melanistic by the way. Oh, even uh, more difficult to see. Yeah. He saw a melanistic one there, but he said you'd see tracks on, you know, logging roads and stuff sometimes, but mm. even the villagers would like rarely, rarely see them. Mm. Um, the only time they really see them is there's some kind of a interaction with cattle, you know, unfortunately, which is causing a lot of problems for, you know, them and a lot of other carnivores, you know, but having the, the the genetic information to be able to decode things like the trafficking or yes. you know which animals are moving through an area has is is a great it shows great hope for a very elusive animal and this series we're doing on jaguars i don't know how long it's going to be but we're going to keep going on this because we want to kind of unlock the mystery of jaguars and it's so easy to look at because um, you and I, you work more than me, but we both worked a while on television quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Usually, everything they try to pitch is like everything is disappearing tomorrow. <laughs> you know, it's like there is no hope for anything. Uh, the world's dying. Yes. But the fact is, even though there are great, great challenges, there's also great hope. We have to continually maintain hope. Yeah. Uh, and and I'm actually part of a. I subscribe to a movement called conservation optimism. Because mm -hmm. 
uh, and this is like a this is a Twitter uh, a Twitter what do you call it tag? Yeah. Conservation optimism hashtag. Conservation optimism, because so more often than not, like you scroll, well, particularly me, because all my friends are conservation scientists, you scroll Mm. through social media and it's just bad news stories all over the place. And we need to focus on 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 all the good things that are happening. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I wanted to mention around uh, Jaguar conservation, and I hope you Mm -hmm. get to talk to this friend and colleague of mine, uh, Mm -hmm. Yvonne Kassane. So she's a she's a wildlife vet in Mexico and she's developed a method to help stop jaguar from poaching livestock because one of the big issues is that you know Mm -hmm. people that depend upon livestock for their livelihood Mm -hmm. if that livestock is getting taken by jaguar then often the jaguar is trapped and killed out of retribution Mm -hmm. and so she's she's trying to stop that by using a a chemical uh, to, to create a taste aversion. So what she does is that she, she takes a carcass, so like a goat carcass, and she laces it with this particular chemical. Mm-hmm. I forget the name of it off the top of my head. It makes the jaguar will then feed on that carcass. It will become sick. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it will never want to eat a goat again in its life. <laughs> Well, that has incredible applications for not only jaguars, but I mean, think so about many. predators around the world right now, you know, exactly. and a jaguar is incredibly important because, you know, uh, the number one uh, product in Brazil other than forestry is beef, uh-huh. you know, and you look at a lot of those areas where they slash and they have the beef farms and stuff. And uh, that's, that's why there are smarter people than Chester Moore on the planet. They can think. <laughs> Like, like, I would never think, you know what we're going to do? We're going to inject something in a carcass. And the jaguar is not going to like it. But that's, that's hope. And yes. um, that shows, you know, I was uh, talking with Peter Gross, uh, who was the replacement for Jim Fowler on Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom in the last couple of seasons of that wonderful uh-huh. program. And uh, he was t- we had the same talk about how, you know, it's not always a downer. You know, there are good things that are still happening. And, um, you know, what's interesting about this conversation, because it's, it's because of who you are inside, but like, we're talking about genetics, we're talking about, you know, injecting meats with, you know, weird chemical compounds and all this stuff, but you can hear a heart for the resource, a heart mm-hmm. for nature. And uh, Jack Hanna told me that unless you, cha- unless you move the heart, you will never change the mind. Oh, so, that's beautiful. Yeah, and he, we had a group of our kids. We have a program, listeners, it's called Wild Wishes, where we grant wildlife encounters to kids that have a terminal oh. illness, have lost a parent or a sibling. We've granted 118 wishes so far oh, in the last seven years. so wonderful. And uh, Jack Hanna was appearing at a place, and I reached out to someone who was bringing animals for him to use. And we thought he'd come out for like a photo op with the kids. He hung out for like an hour with them took photos with all the cool animals and but he said you know that's that's a real thing you know like uh, you got to move the heart before you change the mind so if someone this is to take it all back so you have someone and you got a, a serious case of a jaguar that's been photographed coming across the border people know this from social media that jaguar may be poached we don't know but a dna sample from a kit that could get instant results could be the thing that links that makes a conviction all right. 
And at the same time, the public, whose heart has been moved by these photos and all this stuff, now is moved to make sure that justice is served and that maybe that doesn't happen again, you know, that we can make a move forward with it. So that's why I'm excited about what you're doing and, and so happy to have you here on the show. Oh, thanks, Chester. Well, actually, my biggest motivation for this technology, so you're right, it has all these applications to tracking illegal wildlife trade, to tracking rare mm -hmm. and elusive species, but because it's inexpensive and it will be easy to use, mm -hmm. I can imagine kids using this. Wow. Kids using this, communities using this to discover what is in their backyard. Oh no, that's got crazy applications for me. <laughs> Let me think of what I'm going to try Oh to my God, exactly. My <laughs> exactly. So that, that is what excites me because currently, yeah. and, and there are many different aspects to, to, to uh, my ideas around conservation. So one, mm. we need to empower people around the world to be be more a part of conservation they need sure. we need more and more people to contribute to this fight to save our biodiversity mm -hmm. but on top of that in, in 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 the conservation science world we have a real issue with funding like funding is oh, really yeah. as sure. you know very mm -hmm. and, and in wildlife journalism you know anything to do <laughs> with saving wildlife yeah. I'm thinking, I'm, I could use some funding right now you know? <laughs> There's funding issues and, and, yep. and we depend so much on governments to fund mm -hmm. our research, which of course is very much policy driven. It's very much yep. it's politicized. Mm -hmm. So I, one of the other motiva motivations for creating this technology, and as you said, I, 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 with the help of some incredible people, formed a company mm -hmm. around this technology is I wanted to bypass the dependency mm -hmm. on, on government because I thought we have to find new ways of... Preach, sister, preach. <laughs> <laughs> we need to find new ways of funding conservation. We need to work with business. We need to work with industry. We need to work, sure. you know, because the current system is broken. It's not, it's not working. We're not... You know, whilst I still always maintain hope, I think that we can do so much better um, to win this battle. So and I agree. You know, like I work a lot with a group called the National Wild Turkey Federation, which is basically made of turkey hunters who are biologists and they restore, help restore turkeys. But the main thing is habitat because we've lost longleaf pine forest in the southeast so much because of the timber industry. Because instead of having like savanna-like forest, they're open you plant trees three inches apart and harvest them for, for paper and there's no management. So what they've done, they go to landowners and say, we got to do controlled burns, you know, let, 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 let fire be natural fire because fire is natural. You don't end up with these catastrophic things. And we got to, we got to open up the forest because it helps the turkeys. And well, because there's a demand to help the turkeys, the indigo snakes coming back in some of those areas. The, the gopher tortoise is coming back in some of those areas. Wow. So even though some people may have a little bit ideologically different things, if we can say, hey, let's, let's agree on this and work on this and kick the government out of some mm. of this because of we don't have to deal with politics. We can deal with human beings. Yes. And, and that's the thing is like, you know, people can be people, you know, and like have different ideas and, and things like that. But like, you know, I don't know if, if someone unites over a bird or a, a reptile or a cat. You know, let's use that as a uniting point and do something positive for that, you know, and that's what it's all about right there, you know.
Exactly, exactly. And as you mentioned before, we uh, conservation needs to be multifaceted. So yep. like you, I'm, I'm also passionate with continuing my uh, um, documentary uh, uh, career mm -hmm. because I think it's mm -hmm. so important to be able to inspire and, um, and involve the public in what in the in the work that you do yeah uh, even if they can't get out into that incredible place that you're in you can bring them with mm. you in some capacity. yeah you know and, and and that's the thing about like this even this broadcast technology so with higher calling wildlife that's an offshoot of our wild wishes program where we're mentoring kids teens to be conservationists through media so we've created oh. a magazine and an e-magazine we've got them writing articles doing artwork and because conservation artwork is important as well and um, doing photos and stuff like that. So we're in our second magazine. I'll send you copies. of Yes, it. please do. And, uh, I'll send you the second copy. There was an e-mag and then there's the, the print mag as well and training them to state they have a purpose. So even with this Jaguar thing now going out globally, I'm going to reach out and put the word out for if you have land in Mexico, if you have land in these countries, you have trail cameras, you're monitoring something. If you got Jaguar pictures, send them along. We'll share Jaguar pictures out there, let people know about this. And then maybe you never know where that's going to end up and let people exactly. contribute. Yes. Know that it's not some elitist club. Yes. It's um, people with a, cause you know, it doesn't matter what group you're in. There's always a group of people that try to control things, you know, and uh, I think it's a great thing what you're doing. I think it's like a, I think it evens a playing field. I think it opens up opportunities. And um, if you hadn't had me at the fact you were helping snow leopards and this would help jaguars, you had <laughs> me at kids could get involved. So, oh. Uh, that's awesome. But we've ran out of time for the show. I want to have you back, though, later on. Oh, yes. And we'll talk, we'll talk some more wildlife stuff. I Maybe we'll do a show to. on snow leopards. Maybe oh, do a snow yes. leopard show later on down the line. So <laughs> that's, uh, that's what, what an incredible cat. But uh, thank you, Dr. Natalie Schmidt. And how can people find more information about you and the work you're doing? Uh, they, can just, uh, they can just go to wildtechdna.com. And uh, yeah, they, they can learn more about this technology and the journey and what it's all about and how they can contribute and subscribe and by, by yeah, just going to that website. Well, it's been great reconnecting and an <laughs> honor to have you on the podcast. It's wonderful, Chester. It's so good to see you again. And it's, uh, yeah, I, I, I remember that every time we catch up and talk, when it's, I know it's been a long time, we always mm -hmm. have this passion over wildlife and it's, it's just such yeah. a joy to talk to you. Absolutely. You've been listening to The Higher Calling, hosted by the wildlife journalist Chester Moore. Contact him at Chester at ChesterMoore.com. Follow him at the Chester Moore on Instagram and his blog at HigherCalling.net.